Well, good evening, everybody. Good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 6? All right, as we um, come to Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, we come to a period, of the, a period of time the Bible has more to say about than any other period in human history. It's often referred to as the 70th week of Daniel, Daniel, you can uh, go online and check out our Daniel study, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, to uh, find out why it's called the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, but I think the term that most evangelical Christians use when referring to this period of time is the tribulation period. In the Bible, it does go by other names, but they all speak of the last seven years of human history as we know it, culminating in the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. Uh, time is going to go on for another thousand years during the millennial kingdom, but it'll be the last seven years of human history as we know it, because after Jesus returns, they, there will never be a human leader at the helm of human government. There will be the king of kings running the entire world, and his government is uh, without error, sin, corruption, and so on. So it'll be a glorious new age, uh, not in a metaphysical sense, but the kingdom age is what uh, is referred to in the scriptures. The tribulation period, guys, officially begins when the Antichrist signs a seven-year covenant peace treaty with the nation of Israel. That's in Daniel 9, verse 27. And many scholars believe this covenant will include a provision allowing the excuse me allowing the Jewish people to rebuild their temple on the temple mount in Jerusalem now we know this temple will be rebuilt it will be rebuilt because at the midpoint of the tribulation period the antichrist will go into the rebuilt temple there in Jerusalem and he will stop the sacrifices and daily offerings to the god of gods the the true and living god i should say yeah he is the god of gods uh, the true and living god the god of Israel the Antichrist will stop the uh, sacrifices and daily offerings to God Almighty, put an idol of himself in the Holy of Holies, and demand to be worshipped as God. You can check this out in Matthew 24, verse 15, Revelation 11, verse 1, and 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Now, and we're just reviewing a little bit, but remember as we study Revelation chapter 6 through 19, that we are going to be looking at the judgment of God being poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. That's the focus. And yes, people will get saved, uh, and the earth will be repopulated with believers, because when the rapture happens, every believer on the face of the earth is going to be taken out of here. And because God never leaves himself without a witness, right away he sends the two witnesses. Uh, we see them emerge in Revelation 11, they come at the very beginning of the tribulation period, and they get to work sharing the gospel, and uh, thousands of people get saved, and they go out, and millions upon millions of people will get saved during the tribulation period. But the focus of the tribulation period is, uh, you know, God pouring his judgment out upon this rebellious world. Now, this judgment is broken down into three series of successive judgments in the form of the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. These judgments together will purge the earth of 
the usurpers and the earth dwellers, two terms we've already used before numerous times, preparing it for Jesus' return and the establishing of his kingdom, again, also known as the kingdom age, thousand-year millennial kingdom. Now, in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus begins to break the seals on the scroll. It has seven seals, and when he does, as he begins to break each of these seals, various judgments are released upon the inhabitants of the earth. And as I have already pointed out, the seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowl judgments. In other words, guys, the seven seals contain all the judgments of God poured out upon the earth from the coming of the Antichrist all the way to the end with the return of Jesus Christ. And uh, let me just throw this out again so you know, because you need to have a working knowledge of this. It seems best to understand the first four seals as taking place during the first half of the tribulation period. The judgments of the fifth seal kind of straddling or stretching from the end of the first half into the beginning of the second half of the tribulation period. And then the sixth and seventh seals taking place during the last three and a half years of this seven-year period of time. This last three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. We know that from Revelation 7, verse 14, last part of the seven. The last three and a half years, the Great Tribulation. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Now, some have argued that because the Greek word thalipsis, which is the word for tribulation, isn't used for the first half of the 70th week of Daniel, that it is therefore wrong to refer to those first three and a half years as part of the tribulation period, or in other words, part of God's judgment. They say we should instead call it by what Jesus called these first three and a half years in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, when he said he called them the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows or the beginning of birth pains is the literal Greek translation. But just because a particular word isn't used specifically in the Bible to denote something doesn't mean it's wrong to use that word if the concept is clearly taught in the scriptures. What do I mean? Well, for example, the words Trinity and incarnation are not found in the Bible. Those specific words, in fact, the word Bible isn't even found in the Bible. Yet you've got one in your laps, right? Listen, if the concept is taught in the Bible, like the Trinity, which, of course, it definitely is, even if the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, it is, it is legitimate and accurate to, to use that word to describe that concept. The Bible contains the concept that a woman's birth pangs involve tribulation. In the Old Testament, one of the major words for tribulation is tisara, tisara. That Hebrew word is used in Jeremiah 6, verse 24, and in Jeremiah 50, verse 43. I'll just read these to you. Where Jeremiah 6, 24, we read, We have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish, the Hebrew is tisara, has taken hold of us, pain as of a woman in labor. And then Jeremiah 50, verse 43, The king of Babylon has heard the report about them, and his hands grow feeble. Anguish, to Sarah, 
has taken hold of him pangs as of a woman in childbirth. Now, in the Septuagint, guys, what is that? Well, it's the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Septuagint means 70. And Hebrew had become kind of a dead language. Uh, everyone spoke Greek because Alexander the Great wanted to Hellenize the entire world. He thought the Greek culture, language were the epitome of human civilization. So he really pressed in all the areas he conquered for them to start learning a Greek and uh, being Hellenized, which means to be kind of brought into the Greek way of living, okay? So much so that uh, by the, by the um, end of the, of the Old Testament period, actually about 270 years before uh, the end of the Old Testament period, uh, the Jewish people didn't really speak Hebrew anymore. Now, the priests did, Levites, uh, but it was pretty much a dead language, kind of like Latin, you know? Uh, when I was a young Roman Catholic, the masses were still in Latin, um, but only the priests knew Latin. I mean, it wasn't like the congregation. We, we understood what they were saying. You know, we would nod, and it was nice because, you know, we had no idea what, what, what he was saying, but it sounded good. And, uh, but, but it's kind of that way. So, so in 270 B.C., they hired 70 scholars. The word Septuagint means 70 to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. That became the Septuagint. And the Greek word that was used to translate the Hebrew to Sarah was philipsis, tribulation. So we could translate Jeremiah 6.24 and chapter 50, verse 43 this way. This is from the uh, Septuagint, but in the English. Um, tribulation has taken hold of us pain as a woman in labor. Jeremiah 50, verse 43. Tribulation has taken hold of him pangs as of a woman in, in childbirth. Also in the Greek New Testament, in John chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus said, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish Philipsis, tribulation is what the idea is, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, I, I bring this out for an important reason. You think, well, why are we doing this? It's important because, well, first of all, let me say this. So when we read Matthew 24, verses 4 to 8, when Jesus is describing the first half of the tribulation period, referring to it as the beginning of sorrows, or in other words, the beginning of birth pangs, I think it's biblically accurate and acceptable to call these first three and a half years the beginning of tribulation. This then will be followed by a greater period of tribulation. Uh, you know, as a woman in labor gets closer to the birth of the child, uh, the, the, the pain gets more intense, the contractions become closer together, and, uh, and she enters into that hardest part of, of, uh, of, of labor, uh, labor pains, uh, right before the child is born. And that's going to be, Jesus used the illustration of a woman in labor to describe the tribulation period for a reason. And that is that it's going to start off, uh, the pain of God's judgments are not going to be very intense right away, and they're going to be spaced far apart. Why? Because God is giving people time to repent. God wants all people to repent and to come to the knowledge of the truth, right? So initially, he starts bringing a few judgments, 
They're not overly heavy, but they will increasingly get more and more uh, destructive and, and painful. And of course, the closer we get to Jesus' return, these judgments are coming one after another, uh, cataclysmic upheavals and things. And it seems like the earth is going to be torn literally apart, earthquakes and all kinds of things. And then suddenly, at the height of all this, these birth pangs, great labor. Jesus returns and the kingdom is birthed. One scholar and New Testament professor, whose name is Renald Showers, said, and I quote, Once a woman's birth pangs begin, those pangs cause her, to, cause her the stress of being hemmed into a trying, painful, and unavoidable circumstance of life. She has no alternative but to pass through all the pangs involved in giving birth to a child. In light of this fact, Christ's teachings, Christ's teaching to the effect that the beginning of birth pangs will be experienced during the first half of the 70th week of Daniel, indicating the following truths. Once the birth pangs start at the beginning of the 70th week, those pangs will cause the world the stress of being hemmed into a trying, painful, and unavoidable seven-year circumstance of life. The world will have no alternative but to pass through all the birth pangs involved in giving birth to the messianic age. Because tribulation will be experienced during, excuse me, because tribulation will be experienced during the first half of the 70th week, to apply the word tribulation to that three and a half year period of time is not wrong, end quote. Now I point this out because some will challenge you if you you know, are witnessing to somebody and this subject comes up, some will challenge you when you call the entire seven year, uh, the entire seven years, the tribulation period, telling you that the first three and a half years are not called tribulation in the scriptures. That is untrue. And now you can show them from scripture why it's untrue. Mm. All right, the first seal. And we're still reviewing a little bit. Now, when I saw the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. As we have already stated, we believe this writer, this first writer, is none other, none other than the Antichrist, who will initially rise the power as a man of peace. I'm sure the UN will give him the Nobel Peace Prize, or whoever does that. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I guess that's a Nobel, the commission, or whatever they call themselves. Uh, it doesn't mean too much. Uh, they gave Barack Obama the Nobel Peace Prize. He was only in office 11 days and was bombing uh, some of the countries in the Middle East already. Uh, they gave Yasser Arafat the, uh, you know, Nobel Peace Prize. He was a terrorist, so yeah, I don't really put too much stuff. But but no doubt this this guy will get uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, and uh, uh, it will earn him the title officially as a man of peace. Officially, he's called he's uh, he's alluded to as a man of peace, but now he will officially have the title man of peace. I'm convinced uh, that will happen. And because he will have done what no other human being has ever been able to do, bring about world peace, at least for a time. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5.3, when the people of the world say peace and safety, then God's judgment is going to fall on them. 
like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they're not going to escape. God's judgment will fall, right? It's interesting, as we said last week, how many groups are looking for the Messiah's coming? It's not just a Christian thing, okay? The devil has been preparing the world to be looking for a Messiah because the devil wanted to, to prepare people to receive this guy when he comes, uh, thinking he's the Messiah to whatever group you're talking about. Of course, the Jewish people are looking for uh, their Messiah. They, you know, they rejected Jesus Christ for the most part. Many Jews are getting saved and receiving Christ as their Messiah. But, but, but the nation of Israel, for the most part, is a secular nation. And, uh, but, but there are uh, observant Jews there in Israel and around the world, and they're looking for the coming of their Messiah. Somebody just sent me a video, five-minute video, where it shows Jewish people all over the world, singly and in groups, all praying a specific prayer. They got it written down, and they're all to pray it wherever they are in the world at a certain time, and this prayer is really beckoning Messiah to come. Messiah to come. They believe if they pray enough and all together with one accord, it will bring the Messiah to the earth. Of course, I was checking my notes from last time I taught Revelation, and I realized that the, Shi the, uh, the Shiite Muslims, uh, those are the Iranians, they're Shiites, you know, uh, the Shiites believe that a Mahdi, their Messiah, is coming, and uh, they, they have opened up a prayer hotline where uh, Muslims can call and basically, you know, find out what they can do to help hasten the Mahdi's coming. And so they're into it too, right? The New Age movement has been looking for uh, what, you know, they call their Messiah, although it's really more of a, uh, a reincarnation of the Christ spirit, right? Uh, they believed that uh, the Christ spirit incarnated Jesus 2,000 years ago. He is the, uh, the uh, avatar or Messiah for this present age, the Piscean age, but there is coming a new, uh, you know, a new reincarnation of the Christ Spirit, Maitreya Buddha, who will, who will be the uh, the Messiah uh, of this of the new age that's coming. Okay, we talk about the this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Uh, you know, they've been waiting on this for many years, right? I was a kid when that song was popular. It's interesting as I've studied this. You know, how, how are people going to explain the rapture? Millions and millions of people all over the world disappearing. And then I believe the Antichrist is going to make his will be officially put in, into power. I think the church has got to be out of here before he actually rises to power as a world leader. I think he's alive and all. But if I was reading some New Age literature, and, uh, you know, it's really whacked out, but, you know, there are those that, you know, that believe, these folks believe that the earth is a living organism. And what and, and any uh, monotheists, those with lower vibratory brain waves, uh, I hate to use the word retarded because I wouldn't use that in any other context. But how they think of us, they think we're retarded uh, because we're not. We're monothe monotheists. We we we're not part of the collective that believes in the uh, in the collective consciousness, right? And of course, they they believe that everyone has got to visualize uh, the new age at the same time. Uh, because if, if people will visualize the, the coming of the new age, uh, it'll cause a, a, a um, uh, what do they call that? A, uh, it, it, it's a, I always forget this, um, but it, it, it will cause enough people 
to come together and uh, will catapult the human race into this glorious new age. And man will undergo a, an evolution. All right? But see, all the monotheists, Jews, Christians, and Muslims are holding us back, are holding everybody back, right? So we, they got to get rid of us. Some of them believe that the earth is going to go through a cleansing cycle before this jump into this evolutionary you know, change, right? Um, and it will wipe away all the monotheists, um, you know, or some are more militant. They believe that they have to be killed, us who are monotheists, they have to kill us. It's okay, though. They're doing us a favor because we're retarded. Uh, we're not working, uh, we're not functioning properly, you know. And so the idea is that um, if they kill us, we'll, we'll get reincarnated. We'll come back, maybe this time a little more enlightened, get with the program, okay? And so they're doing us a favor, they, they believe. So that's, but um, I've even heard some talk of the Space Brothers. People from another planet will come and, and take up all these monotheists, cleansing the world. So they, they have explanations, but okay. Um, the second seal, verse 3. When he opened, when Jesus opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature, uh, the uh, second living creature, saying, "Come and see." Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Of course, red is the color of blood, suggesting that this fiery red horse speaks of bloodshed, uh, indicative of war that is going to come upon the earth as the tribulation progresses. Uh, author Ray Stedman writes, and I quote, Understandably, many Bible scholars today view this great sword as a symbol of awesome power, of the awesome power of the nuclear bomb. We have to admit that it is only in our century, of course it's going back into last century, 20th century, um, but it's only been like 80 years since nuclear weapons have been invented, I guess, so, along those lines. And so he said, we have to admit that this is only in our century with its, uh, its efficient high-tech approach to killing that the fulfillment of these terrible predictions could even come about. What predictions? Well, one of them would be what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 22. He said, unless those days were shortened, no human life would be left upon the earth. No life, I should say, would be left upon the earth. He said, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. In other words, if God would allow the tribulation period to go on for years and years, it would be so devastating that all life on earth would be destroyed. And so God mercifully limits it uh, to a, a specific period of time. And then Jesus returns, right? But, um, guys, some, look, look, some have suggested that, and again, we talked about this last time, I'm not going to spend any time on it, but some have suggested that if the Antichrist is the first writer who brings a temporary time of peace to the earth, the second writer could be the false prophet, his sidekick, uh, which uh, takes, who takes peace from the earth. You can check out Revelation 13, verse 15, where it talks about, the false prophet killing people who don't worship the Antichrist, right? Now, guys, as I said last week, I think it's possible that the first and second writers are one in the same person. They uh, both are pointing to the Antichrist. Both are the Antichrist. Uh, why two different writers? Because it speaks of the Antichrist, Antichrist before 
Satan entered him and then after. During the, around the midpoint, uh, somebody's going to try to assassinate him and he miraculously resurrects from the dead. We'll talk about, more about this in Revelation 11. And at that point, Satan enters into him and he becomes a, a different man. He becomes, uh, you know, a bloodthirsty tyrant, okay? But um, we know that the Antichrist initially comes on the world scene, again, as a man of peace, who brings about global peace by uniting the world in a one-world government consisting of ten nations or regions that are run by ten kings or presidents or prime ministers. I don't know what the, the term is going to be. I believe with all my heart that when the world comes together in this one world government with these ten regions and ten uh, prime ministers that are over the world government, right? The Antichrist initially now, initially is not going to be the king of the world, okay? I think he's going to be more in line with the, with the United Nations uh, uh, Secretary General thing. He's facilitating. Okay, he's not really running things per se. He's facilitating this global unity, this global government. Who knows? He could. He might even be the UN uh, General Secretary, Secretary General. Uh, who knows if the UN uh, morphs into this, you know, this world dominating uh, organization? We know that. Um, well, let me just say this. The idea of him being a man of peace, though, okay, we say he's coming initially as a man of peace. All that means is he doesn't take a power by warfare. He is given power because of something going on in the world, some kind of crisis, chaos, all right? And he seems to be the only guy that can fix it, all right? And so he is a man of peace in the sense that he doesn't take authority. It's given to him. But listen, being a man of peace doesn't necessarily mean he won't use the power invested in him by the leaders of the world to force people to, you know, acquiesce to him as he brings about his global government. I think verse 2 in, uh, implies something very interesting along these lines. It says, he who sat on it had a bow. Now we're talking about the Antichrist, the first writer. And a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer now we have already pointed out that the greek word for crown is stephanos and that was the crown given to a conqueror when the roman generals came back from battle having been victorious they would throw them a victory parade and put on their heads these laurel wreaths these stephanos why because they conquered Rome's enemies, and now they were rewarded with a crown and a parade. This is backwards. He's given a crown first, and then he goes out to conquer. This says to me, the world is giving him the authority to take control. This is his mandate, right? He hasn't conquered yet, but they have empowered him to go out into the world and to bring about this one world government. I think it's best not to conflate the idea of the Antichrist being a, being a man of peace with the idea of him being a peaceful man. We make a mistake if we do that. We know that around the midpoint of the last seven years, 
He will become a bloodthirsty military madman bent on world conquest through war. We just talked about why we think he'll become a madman. He'll be possessed by the devil. But initially, he will exert, if I can put it this way, di diplomatic co coercion over the people of the world. Now, this, however, doesn't mean he won't use the power of the state to force people to give up their national sovereignty and to federate under his new global government, even if it means eliminating any opposition to his mandate of bringing about a world of unity and peace. And folks, it's all going to be perfectly legal and socially acceptable, which I believe we see implied in the statement in verse 4, and there was given to him. Again, they're giving him power and authority. He's not taking it through military force, not initially. That doesn't mean he's going to be a good guy. That doesn't mean he's going to be this sweet man of peace. And there was given to him a great sword. The world will give him, give the Antichrist his authority. Not just a sword, but folks, a great sword. In other words, the people of the world will be so enamored with him as a leader and so convinced in his ability to bring about peace and utopia upon the earth that they invest in him the power, listen, of universal worldwide capital punishment to use on anyone who tries to resist him. And his followers will be helping him as they kill those who oppose them. Again, verse 4. And it was granted to, uh, to the one who sat on it, on this, this horse, to take peace from the earth and that people should kill. The Greek is slaughter one another. And I believe the idea is that those who are slaughtering people are the Antichrist's followers. They are so convinced that this guy is, well, some will believe he's a god, okay? But they're so convinced that he alone has the answers and the power, uh, you know, the answers and, and all for the world's problems. And so they, they get behind him and they seek to do whatever they can to help him to promote the coming of his kingdom. They want worldwide a peace and unity and a global government sounds like the answer to all of man's problems. Then we're all under one umbrella and so on. And so I believe that, uh, that his followers go out and they start to kill, slaughter anyone who will not get in line and follow this man, right? It seems to me that the world's philosophy at that time is going to be, if you want to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs, and that's how they're going to look at it. You want a world kingdom? You want peace and utopia on the earth? we got to get rid of all the miscreants, all the malcontents, all the rebels who won't line up, who, who are not in this with us, right? Of course, it's not going to be, you know, you got to break a few eggs. They're going to be slaughtering millions, millions of people. You don't have to turn there, but we're going moving quickly into chapter 7. And in chapter 7, verses 9 and 14 especially, we read that there are so many people in heaven, these are believers now, that have been martyred by the Antichrist 
John can't even count the number, it's so large. And the elder asked him, John, who are these? Giant, large group. John says, I, I don't know, you tell me. These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, who have washed their robes in the blood of Christ. These are tribulation saints, believers. Now guys, listen. Ultimately, any authority this Antichrist gets will be given to him by God. You understand it, right? I don't care how bad things get in the, in the world or on the earth. God's in control. Our God is absolutely sovereign. He is in complete control. And he allows things to happen to bring about his ultimate purposes. And right now his purpose is going to be to cleanse the earth of all the usurpers, rebels, and earth dwellers who, are, uh, who will, do not want Jesus to reign over them. And he is purging the earth of these people in preparation for Jesus to come back and to establish his kingdom. What is God doing at this point, though? He is giving the people of this world the leader they desire and deserve just like israel rejected god's authority over their life remember in the book of samuel and they came to samuel the prophet who was a judge of israel there were no kings yet uh, so there were the judges and samuel was one of the judges in other words he was uh, uh, the leader of the nation okay and one day the people of israel came to samuel and said we want a king like the other nations they get to have a king why can't we have a king right so Samuel was upset. He felt like the people were rejecting him. He goes before the Lord, and the Lord says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so God gave to the people the king they desired, tall, dark, and handsome Saul, right, who was an unmitigated disaster. But sometimes God will give people the leaders they want and deserve. And so... Saul started out good, but soon became a tyrant. And the same will be true of the Antichrist, basically. All right, the third seal. Verse 5. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, guys, in Scripture, the color black is uh, sometimes uh, associated with famine. I'll give you one uh, place. Lamentations 4, verses 8 and 9. Let me read it to you. Now, their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. For they pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. And so here in Scripture, you know, black is associated with uh, those who are dying of famine. The coming of this black horse again, is associated with global famine. But listen, famine due to hyperinflation. Famine due to hyperinflation. And also, I'll throw this in, famine also follows warfare, verse 4. So, you know, there's warfare, and that will create famine as well. But right here in these verses, 
it seems that what is in view is famine due to hyperinflation. Now, a denarius uh, was the equivalent of a day's wage for a common working man or soldier. A denarii, a denarii, a denarii uh, was uh, was the uh, the uh, day's wage for a, a blue collar working guy uh, or a soldier. All right. Um, normally, a day's wage in those days purchased eight measures of wheat and twenty four measures of barley. But during this period of time, it will take an entire day's wage to buy enough food to feed one person for a day. Let's see if we can kind of uh, get our minds around that, okay? If a person makes $50,000 a year working a six-day work week in today's economy, that means he or she makes roughly $160 a day. That would mean a small loaf of wheat bread, only enough to feed one person for a day, would cost $160, roughly. Now, I realize that uh, the wages today are not necessarily going to be exactly what they're going to be in a hyperinflation uh, economy, okay? Uh, but just so you get an idea. Uh, but in, in other words, whatever a day's wage will be under this hyperinflation, a day's wage will only buy enough food for one person for a day. Now, what could be in view here, and I really kind of lean towards this, okay? Uh, this could also imply that controlled rationing will be in place where everybody will work for the state. One world government is going to be the ultimate communistic situation. The government, the one world government, the state will own everything. It's going to own everything, and everybody is going to work for the government. And at the end of every day, you will be rationed by the... You have to do your job for the government. Every day, you will receive your food ration for the day. All right? But what if people can't work? They will die. Because the government, under that kind of a situation, like today, a communist government, there's no mercy and compassion on the weak. They just, if they can't work, they don't eat, they don't, they, they just leave them to die. Okay? It's a heartless system. And think of it, I, I remember a pastor years ago uh, talking about uh, World War II and how his parents lived in Austria and uh, when Hitler started to rise to power, they fled. They, they saw the handwriting on the wall. They fled. Came over here to America where they enjoyed freedom, where they lived the rest of their lives, uh, you know, earning a good living and so on. He says when the Antichrist rises to power and brings about this global government, think about it. If it gets bad, and we know it will get bad, there's nowhere to run. You can't run to America. America will be under this system, right? It's going to be a horrible period of time. Um, there'll be no escaping it, okay? Verse 6, once again, and do not harm the oil and the wine. I believe this idea of oil and wine are a way of saying luxuries, like toiletries, beauty aids, liquor, etc. In other words, the common people are suffering a shortage of necessities, the basics, while the rich have no lack even of luxuries. During this period, guys, during, during this period of time, there will be only two classes of people upon the earth, the rich and the poor. There won't be any, any middle class. 
There are many rich people that have wanted that for many, many years. Why, I'm not sure. They have everything they need. Uh, why are you so selfish and greedy that you're working to destroy the middle class, folks just trying to make a living, um, attain a level of, 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 of living that is not excessive or extravagant, just comfortable? And you got some very wicked people who have every more money than they could ever use, but they don't want you to have any. They want you poor, that they might be even richer. Well, they'll stand before God. I think it's disgusting, mm-hmm. uh, but this is where we're headed, and it's going to come to a head in the book, of, as the book of Revelation describes it, right? But during this time, two classes of people on the face of the earth, the rich and the poor, no middle class. Verse 5, he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Now, guys, these scales speak of commerce. Think of the weighing scale. That's what the idea is, okay? They speak of commerce. The Antichrist will control the world's economy by issuing a number so that, every, so that nobody, I should say, will be able to buy or sell or work without that number. We'll study this in more detail in Revelation chapter 13. And through this number, I was listening to a woman who grew up in uh, Romania under communism. And she said they were all given this little card. Back then it was a card. And basically it was a card that the Communist Party issued to people. Without it, you couldn't go to the grocery store. You couldn't hold a job. It was a precursor to what is coming, which they won't give you a card. They'll just somehow uh, put it on people's foreheads and right hands. Uh, you know, whatever it might be, a chip, microchip, so, something like that, right? But we, we saw some of this, you know, even, you know, during World War II, um, that it will really reach a climax in the coming uh, months and years. But uh, the Antichrist was going to control the world's economy by issuing a number to everybody so that nobody, again, will be able to buy, work, um, hold a job, buy, sell, work, without that number, and through it, listen, he will control the world's economy by controlling the world's commerce. Now, guys, we are not living in an agrarian culture. We are living in an industrial culture, okay? Now, we're not farmers, is what I'm saying. We don't grow our own food. We don't dig our own wells and get our water from our own wells and our own land, Okay? We're, we're city dwellers. Uh, we we you know, jump in a car, drive to work, work in an office or whatever you, you work in, and you come home, you need food, you go to the grocery store, okay? You need water, you turn on the faucet. That's how it is for us. We've gotten used to that way of living. We are dependent on others to grow our food and provide us with clean, safe drinking water, without which there would be death, and death breeds disease. Now, I think the Lord mercifully gave us a little preview of what it would be like uh, if everything went down. Texas, right? Um, Amazing what happened in Texas. Um, They have more natural gas, oil deposits. um, They have nuclear energy. But yet, some woke leaders, and I like the governor uh, of Texas and the the, uh, uh, the assistant governor, Lieutenant Governor, um, they're good guys. I don't know if they didn't have full knowledge of what was going on, but because of this woke thinking and this, uh, 
green uh, you know economy and stuff. Um, they allowed 25% of their uh, of their energy needs to be invested in solar and wind. Well, in the winter time, it's cloudy a lot, so solar panels don't do too much for you. And they went through one of the worst cold spells they've ever had, and it froze the wind turbines. Right. Well, that overloaded the the rest of the grid that couldn't catch up, and the whole thing almost it was almost a, a cascade effect. I read an article that the energy company in Texas said they were not hours but minutes away from a total system catastrophic failure that would have wiped out all the citizens of Texas power. Okay, for how, what? Four days? Five days? Folks had no electricity, no running water, no heat. Right. One mom and her, uh, who uh, her, uh, you know, garage was ground level, and then she would walk upstairs where the living area was above the garage, and so she started her car, to in the hopes that the car running in the garage would heat the house, and uh, it asphyxiated her and her little girl. They both died. I, I was reading of another uh, vet veteran who uh, was on dialysis and couldn't get his dialysis, and he died. Uh, others, that one guy had a oxygen machine, and uh, when the power went out, he thought, he thought, it'll be back on before my batteries run down. Well, it wasn't, and he died. And so all kinds of people are, were dying because there was, you know, you get dependent on, you know, go to the store, food's always going to be there. I'm going to have gas to put my car to go to the store. I'm going to have heat in my house and running water. You know, there's coming a time, and I was writing to a, a, an all-day uh, board meeting on Monday with a pastor, a Calvary guy from uh, Wisconsin. And we got to talking about everything, and he lives uh, like in a rural area. He's got 11 acres, and he was telling me that him and his wife plant a gigantic garden every year, and they harvest all kinds of things. A lot of it is frozen. Uh, a lot of it is canned. Uh, they raise their own chickens. They've got you know a well on their own property. I said you're going to be in a lot better shape than I'm going to be in if you know everything goes down. But can you imagine what the folks in Texas went through? Can you imagine that throughout the world? Just think of America, where most Americans, 95 percent, are without power, heat water uh they they can't uh you know their their uh, medical machines don't work um and they're dying by the thousands uh, you can't you can't get warm I, I was talking to a missionary that we supported in china and of course the communist government in china when it gets like five o'clock in the evening all the thermosets are controlled by the government you, you can't control them they're automatically set to go down way down uh, five, for the whole night. And she says all they can do is come home from work and wrap themselves in a few blankets and jump in bed because you, it's too cold to do anything else in the wintertime. And I thought, you know, we're, we're moving in that direction, right? All right, the fourth seal, verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. 
and power was given to them over a, over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. The fourth seal represents death by warfare and natural disasters, including earthquakes, plagues, and the beasts of the earth. Uh, pale uh, is chloris in the Greek and speaks of a pale green color. In other words, the color of a corpse. It's death. Death and Hades followed him. Death claims the physical body. Hades claims the soul is the idea. Death and Hades, right? Death affects the physical body. Hades claims the soul. As civilization begins to break down and crumble, guys, so will the world's defenses against disease crumble as well. There will be no sanitation, no clean drinking water, which could lead to cholera, dysentery, and other hyper-deadly diseases like Ebola and bubonic plague. Uh, you could probably throw into the mix biological warfare uh, that might be used, and that's part of what is killing people. All right, um, but I just see a lot of different things coming into play, and uh, you know, after World War One, uh, it was reported that more people died of influenza and typhoid than had died as casualties of the war. So the aftermath of war is often much more deadly than the war itself. During the judgment of the fourth seal, because there will be a shortage of food and clean drinking water, listen, death will be everywhere, and disease will spread like wildfire. Now, no doubt, no doubt, the wealthy will have plenty to eat and have access to medicines and medical care, while the rest of the world will be left to suffer and die. And again, we read that the rider of this horse was given power, listen, verse 8, over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. One author said, and I quote, rats have been responsible for uncounted millions of deaths throughout history, both by eating food supplies and especially by spreading disease. The most infamous and devastating occurrence of rat-borne disease was the Black Death, a 14th century outbreak of bubonic plague that wiped out one-fourth to one-third of Europe's population. Can you imagine that? A plague that would wipe out a third of America uh, people. In a world ravaged by war, famine, and disease, the rat population may run wild, end quote. The word beast in verse 8 is a Greek word that is used also in Acts 28 verses 4 and 5 of deadly poisonous snakes which means that during this time there might be a dramatic increase in deadly snakes across the earth that bite and kill many. You know, in the Old Testament, God used animals and even insects to judge people. Uh, during the ten plagues that he brought against Egypt, remember Egypt is the type of the world, the Lord used frogs, lice, flies, and locusts to judge people. In Exodus 23, verse 28, he talks about using hornets, to drive out the Canaanites from their land, the form of judgment. Folks, let me just say this. There are some nasty hornets that God has created. The scariest of the bunch is the Asian giant hornet, sometimes called the murder 
hornet. I challenge you to go online and look up the Asian, don't do it now, <laughs> the Asian giant hornet. It is a fearful looking thing. Uh, over two inches long, and uh, it likes honeybees. And it's got these big mandibles. And what it does, it's gigantic compared to these little honeybees. It, they go over and chop off, bite off the head of the honeybee, and they drag the carcass back to wherever they, they eat, you know. Uh, but when they sting people, their sting is so vicious. I saw uh, one guy that had been attacked by a horde of these things. They just found the first nest, by the way, in Washington State, so they're here, okay? <laughs> that didn't bless you enough. Um, I don't know why I threw that out, but I, I was online checking these insects out, thought, and, and one said, uh, oh, they found their first uh, net, the giant Asian hornet nest in Washington State, so the, they may have migrated from there. Um, but, but this one guy got attacked, and their, the venom in their stings is so powerful that when the, the wound heals, it leaves an indentation as if you were shot with a bullet, and it healed. You ever see somebody that had been shot with, with a bullet? Uh, it leaves an indentation uh, in, their, in their arm or back or wherever, and uh, that's, that's how it looks. These are very vicious uh, insects, right? What am I saying? I'm just, in other words, God is going to use nature, the creature, to judge man. Why? Because man refuses to worship the creator and rather worships the creature. Turn to Romans chapter 1 as we bring it to a close. You all know this, but it fits right where we are. Let me just read it to you again. Why is God going to use nature to judge people? Because people worship nature rather than God. And so Paul talks about God's wrath. His judgment poured out upon these kind of folks. Romans 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to, the, to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, listen, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God, during this period of time, is judging all idols. And, you know, the very creation itself, the very thing God created and revealed himself through to such an extent that the Bible says the, the creation declares the glory of God, the, the heavens show forth his handiwork, they speak a universal language night into night, uh, day into day they utter the, the, the knowledge of God's existence, Right? But people look at that and they reject the existence of God. And instead of allowing the creation to point them to the creator, 
they reject the creator and they worship the creation. That is the height of folly and is rooted in rebellion. Because the creation won't, won't demand anything from you. You know, these people down in the forest dancing among the trees, right? Uh, you know, I don't know what it makes them feel, how it makes them feel, but the trees don't make any demands on their lives. The trees won't tell them not to sleep with their boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever. Nature leaves you alone. That's the idea. Uh, let's just bypass the creator, get rid of God, and then we can just worship the creation. That's paganism. It's just abject paganism. We're seeing it, though. Now, guys, these four judgments coming upon the whole world parallel the judgments God poured out on his own people. In fact, I have Jerusalem in mind, as mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 17, and in chapter 14, verse 21. Let me read those two uh, passages to you. Ezekiel 5, 17, So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you, pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you, I the Lord have spoken. Ezekiel 14, verse 21, For thus says the Lord God, How much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem. Uh, my four severe judgments. In other words, God has these judgments that he has used before and will use again. He calls them my four severe judgments. The sword and famine and wild beast and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. So again, guys, God has used these kinds of judgments in the past, uh, I think as a, as a kind of a precursor to a future worldwide judgment that is coming. In the context of Ezekiel 5.17, the context is in verses 12 to 16, indicates that the famine, beast, pestilence, and sword of that passage are expressions of God's wrath, God's judgment. In verse, verses 13 and 15 of Ezekiel 5, there appears two of the six most common Hebrew words used for the anger and wrath of God. These are judgment words. The words hema, which refers to a burning and consuming wrath, and the Hebrew word ap, which refers to anger. Why do I bring this up? Because I'm going to just finish with what I said a, a while ago, don't let anyone tell you that the first three and a half years of this tribulation period, the first four seals, are not part of God's wrath being poured out upon mankind. There are those again who say that these four seals, again, the first part of the tribulation period, the first three and a half years, are not part of the tribulation period. They're just the beginning of sorrows, in other words, they're simply referring to what man does to his fellow man and not part of God's judgments upon the earth. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. The first four seals are definitely a part of the wrath of God poured out upon the earth, which he has used in the past, even pouring them out upon Jerusalem for its wickedness. And in Ezekiel 14, verse, 24, uh, verse 21, again, he refers to them as my four severe judgments. We'll end with verse 8, guys. Verse 8 tells us that through these judgments, 
Try to get your mind around this. Through these judgments, one quarter of the earth's population will be destroyed. If the population of the earth is 6 billion, I think it's more than that now, but let's just say it's 6 billion. If the population of the earth is 6 billion people, that means that the deaths from these first four sealed judgments equals 1.5 billion people. Guys, that is the equivalent. Uh, that is equivalent to the combined populations of, you ready? South America, Central America, Mexico, the United States, Canada, and all of Europe. All wiped out in the first four seals. There's going to be a lot of death and destruction. The world Now, during this time where people are being slaughtered, I mean, yeah, the Antichrist followers, they're slaughtering believers, but God is pouring his wrath out on the unbelievers. During this time, the Holy Spirit is going to be very active working to save people. I believe it could be possible, and I could be wrong, it could be possible that as many, if not more, people get saved during the tribulation period than have gotten saved throughout the entire church age. I, I might be wrong. John can't even count the number in chapter 7 of all those that have been martyred. And we're not at the end of the tribulation period at that point. Somebody said to me the other day, if the rapture, when the rapture happens and the Holy Spirit is taken out of here, can people even get saved? Uh, no, not without the Holy Spirit. That's why he's not going to be taken out of here. The Holy Spirit working inside the church, yeah, the church is going to be taken out. We are the moral conscience of the world. We are the light. You think things are bad now? People ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till they see a world where there is no church. They think, you know, <laughs> there are people that hate us. They hate everything about us, right? We open our mouth to the Lord and they want to just rip us apart and they're cursing us and, and you know, I just wish you were all gone. And God says, fine, come on up here, church. And we're all gone. And then... You talk about immorality, viciousness, evil, wickedness. Uh, nothing is holding evil back. It's a free-for-all, okay? Now, you and I know that during times of, uh, of like that, I mean, we haven't seen anything like that yet, but you can imagine that if that was uh, the world scene, um, we're talking about how can, I mean, how can it's, it's like, I don't know, the Wild West times a million. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, parts of the Wild West before law had a chance to really take hold. And it was a free-for-all. It was, it was survival of the fittest. It was, uh, you know, uh, rope and gun uh, solved a lot of uh, problems, uh, you know, and all of that. And um, you imagine a situation where there is no law and order. Uh, it's survival of the fittest. Um, in that kind of a situation, people will be so terrified. I believe their hearts will be open to God. And God's going to be saving millions. Yeah, it's, it's going to be bad. It's going to be horrific. This is not how God wanted to do it. He said, simply, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You know, but, as C.S. Lewis once said, God uh, whispers in our pleasures and shouts in our pain. And sometimes people's hearts get so hard... Their ears so dull of hearing that God has to shout through tribulation 
and persecution and adversity to, to shake them awake, basically, where they're open now to receiving God. And he's going to be saving millions. The Holy Spirit's going to be here, very active during the tribulation period. But it's not going to be easy. And um, so today's the day of salvation, you know. Um, today's the day to get saved. And uh, we will continue, God willing, next time as we continue, I think, with the uh, fifth seal. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us and will take us as your church before the tribulation period begins. But we pray for all those left behind, many of them our loved ones, that you would save them quickly and give them strength to uh, persevere. But uh, we want to see them ultimately with us in heaven someday. But so, Lord, give us grace whatever time is left to be a light and to keep serving you with all our hearts. And you keep also blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.